Welcome to Occult of Personality, esoteric podcast extraordinaire. I'm your host, Greg Kaminsky. In episode number 211, we're joined again by our good friend, spiritual practitioner, martial artist, and author, Craig Williams, to discuss his recent book, Tantric Physics 1 and 2, from Anathema Publishing Limited. Occult of Personality podcast is made possible by you, the listeners, and by the subscribers to chamberofreflection.com, our membership site who aids us in the cause of informed, authentic, and accessible interviews about Western esotericism. Thank you again. Because of your support, we're able to bring you recordings of this caliber and many more to come. Anathema Publishing Limited. Quality occult books and contemporary esoterica. Established in 2011, Anathema Publishing aims to provide superior literature in content and form by creating a trinosophic relationship in troth and gabo between publisher, author, and reader. Anathema Publishing produces refined books for the true bibliophile on topics ranging from Gnosticism traditional craft, alchemy, hermeticism, witchcraft, to Luciferian theosophy. www.anathemapublishing.com Now, in episode number 211, Craig Williams returns to the show to talk about his wonderful book, Tantric Physics, specifically volume 2, Sacred Body, Sacred Space. You can find Craig online at AyurvedaAustin.com. I want to take a moment to reminisce about how I've known Craig personally for nine years. Since the day I met him, he's been honorable, straightforward, honest, smart, talented, inspiring, and has had the most intense focus on advancing his spiritual path of almost anyone I've ever known. Craig's writing and talks inspire his readers and listeners to learn and grow and become better people. I'm honored and proud to call Craig my friend. I am also thrilled that he joined us here to discuss Tantra and his book, which is an absolutely amazing two volume in one. It's one of the best books on the subject that I've read. Whatever your spiritual path, Craig's work is beneficial because he is describing authentic esoteric view and methods that are designed to and do produce Gnosis as the result. I highly recommend Tantric Physics 1 and 2. The intro music is Awakening by Paul Adjurinos, and the outro music is Diana Nemorensis by Numinal Vibes. Now, I just want to take a moment to let you know, which I would usually do at the end of the interview, but I'm going to do it again then. But I have to say that in the second half of this interview that's in the Chamber of Reflection, Craig and I continue this discussion and we dive very, very deeply into an exploration of Gnosis Gnostic bliss, birth and death, 
and much more. And in all my years of recording this podcast, few interviews have resulted in a more in-depth analysis and discussion that goes straight to the heart. So I hope you enjoy this first part as much as we did, and I hope you join us for the second part in the Chamber of Reflection. Thank you. I want to welcome you back to Occult of Personality, Craig Williams. It's always great to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Greg, it's an honor to be on. I'm always so thankful to be on your show, and I'm excited for what we're going to talk about. So am I. So am I. Um, before we begin, I just want to take a moment to say that um, I always love talking with you. I you may have been interviewed on a cult of personality more than any other single guest. I'm pretty certain that's the case. And I feel like every time I speak with you, I don't just learn one new thing. I learn many new things and I gain a greater appreciation for esoteric spirituality in general. Um, I've always appreciated the way you approach your study and practice and work, uh, you have a tremendous amount of discipline and you're a huge inspiration to me. And I know many other people out there. And uh, I mean, since I met you in 2012, um, every time that we've had any interaction, I've come away feeling completely uplifted and inspired and amazed um, at the way that you are so dedicated to what you do. And that dedication pays off in so many ways. So um, I really appreciate that. And um, I just wanted to mention that, uh, you know, because I feel like what we're about to talk about is, is in many ways, uh, like a crowning achievement, not to say that you're done or anything, but this, what you've written here is really tremendous. And uh, I'm excited to discuss it with you. I'm totally honored by your words. And I'm just so grateful for your interesting questions. And so I think that always stimulates our discussion. And so, um, and, and I think what we can discuss tonight, I think that you are right about um, this being something that I feel like I've accomplished. And I'm ready to be happy with that. So we can discuss that too. Excellent. So the reason for our interview right at the moment is your recent book, Tantric Physics, Volume 2, Sacred Body, Sacred Space, published by Anathema Publishing Limited. And I have to say, this is just like, I've loved every one of your books, but this one has a really special place in my heart. Uh, I love the way that uh, it's published with volume one uh, of the book um, as like, it's a great to revisit that and then to mm-hmm. go into the new section. It, to me, as I mentioned before we started this, you, what you've written here is to me like the best exposition on Tantra I've ever encountered outside of like an oral teaching from my teacher. And 
to me, like that's the highest praise I could possibly give a book. And the reason I feel that way is, is as I said, because the book actually gives the reader a taste of what is actually happening as opposed to explanations or academic um, expositions on what is Tantra and what is the sadhana and what is, you know, very like dry structured, what you've provided here goes like deep into the heart of the very practice of Tantra and its results. And I can't say enough good things, but maybe you could give us some insight into how you developed the idea for what you were going to present and the way that you did it. I appreciate that feedback. And that's a really interesting comment that you make about it feeling like an oral exposition, because that's really what I wanted it to feel like. Um, I, I, I was adamant that this book would not just be in another dry textbook on Tantra or yoga or Ayurveda. Um, there's a million books about all that out there. And there's some really phenomenal books about that. Um, and I remember being in the academic world, you know, studying religious studies and, and being very uh, unhappy with that writing style. It was something that just, it just didn't really inspire me. So, you know, 40 years later, uh, 35 years later, when I write this, I wanted it to be something that would be alive with a vibrancy of the oral tradition. And, and so to hear that feedback from you as a practitioner is, is incredibly rewarding. Um, and, I, and I also didn't want it to be a book that had um, endless uh, definitions and explanations. I just wanted it to be as if someone was just transported into a room where a discussion was happening or even another dimension where a discussion was happening and they could, they could kind of take something from that, taste what they can. Um, Cause a lot of it has to do with what they can taste, right? How, it, you know, it will help. What is their palate like? Are they able to absorb certain things? So each time a reader can go to this book, hopefully they can find something different, find something more. Um, and I also wanted a large part of it to be expressed in poetic writing, um, which is kind of a, a nod to the Vedas, the Rig Veda, uh, on the Atharva Veda, these texts, which were written in a poetic language, which, which had several, many, four to five, six different levels of meaning. And so I, I hopefully achieved that as well. So those are, those are in my, you know, my mind when I was writing this. I mean, I really wanted the first volume to be included because it, it, that Cave the Numinous Tantric Physics Volume 1 has long been sold out and just had horrible prices on eBay and things. And I, and I think that's very unfair. And so I wanted that book to be reissued um, in, in a more authentic presentation and then to have them together, I think, is a nice kind of type of vibrancy that they tie together in the sequence. Um, and, and then I also wanted, I remember writing a little bit in the book, I wanted it to be a type of a journey so that the volume one was kind of the outer part of the temple. Um, and then as you move into volume two, sacred body, sacred space, that was going into the actual doorway to the inner chambers of the temple. And so things change, right? When you're on the exterior of the temple, um, there's one level of perception. But as you go deeper, um, the, the consciousness will change. The perceptions will change. Certainly. So hope, hopefully that comes through when people read the book. Yeah, absolutely. And I have to tell you, as a person that practices Tantra, myself maybe not the same specific version but 
a version, certainly. Uh, I had great appreciation for what you wrote. And then, you know, even as my own practice develops, like my appreciation for it grew. And oh. there were, you know, different aspects that seemed emphasized at different times. It was just beautiful because it's almost like a very dynamic living text in that sense. That was my vision. And, and I'm glad to hear your feedback as a practitioner from that. Um, and I, I did hope that, uh, you know, we, we mentioned the idea of the Raza or the taste of that, that someone was going to be able to, to taste this and extract something from this. Um, and then regardless of what style of Tantra they were practicing, um, obviously when one looks to this book, it's, it's clear that this is, has a Hindu tint to it, but the Tantra tradition, you know, runs much beyond any kind of minuscule sectarian disputes. Absolutely. And I try, and I tried to show that in the book too. I wanted people to see that this is not just one small, you know, branch of tantra that only argues one i tried to show within that there was a vast you know array of doorways within this world um and to use a overused word that it does have a quantum aspect to it that depending on how you look at the tantric world it can morph and change based on uh, on the adhikara or the readiness of the practitioner or the perception of the practitioner oh absolutely it's completely dependent on that in many ways i think um boy that, that's really a fascinating concept um and then if people have their own you know deity of their own lineage that they are connected to uh, you know particularly if it was a, a hindu then they could easily find doorways within this text to where they could expand within their own practice but even if someone was a tibetan tantric practitioner they would see doorways within this book as well oh most definitely and in, in many ways, authentic te Dharma teachings or Tantric teachings, uh, I find to be like a holographic in the sense that no matter at, at which point or node you enter into it, it inevitably leads you to the totality. Yes, that's an incredibly important concept. And that was actually the, the, the inspiration, the initial inspiration for me to call these texts tantric physics. And mm. um, that was the idea um, that there was, it, there's a holographic experience when one does that. Um, and even within the Dasha Mahavidyas, the wisdom goddess tradition, that becomes quickly apparent that depending on what viewpoint that the person has, the goddess reveals herself in a different way. Um, yeah. and that's, and that's also in the Vedas as well too, the deities morph in and out of each other in very mysterious ways. That's yeah, that is a fascinating aspect of it. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about is this sort of notion that you mentioned in the introduction about the corporeal as a field of human experience. I mean, mm -hmm. This is so crucial, and yet we find, especially within the Western esoteric traditions, uh, what I've come to see is like a very Gnostic dualism where, 
you know, there's a almost a contempt for physicality and the body and the experience of enworldment. Oh yeah, I I agree. I mean, there's there's definitely we could almost call it like a type of philosophical verticalism, right? What these uh, that viewpoint or the old viewpoint would be that the the body is is just like a you know like a breeding ground for karma and it's it's a prison and it's locking you into samsara and that we long to escape this body in this prison and that is an aspect of it when you read some yogic and tantric text but it's a very myopic viewpoint and if you're not informed with the larger tradition you, you can really kind of miss the whole concept is that yes we we want to kind of transform and, and and always progress in our spiritual practice but we don't quickly want to escape the body particularly if we are incarnated because we're ver- number one it's very rare to get a human body from this perspective and then it's even more rare to get a human body that's healthy and that we can exist in a dimension where we are able to study the dharma through teachers and through practitioners and through lineages all that is so rare and it's such a rare experience um, that that provides a very unique opportunity for us to live out our karma, to transform our karma. And then from a tantric perspective, we, we really can embrace that. We want to see that the body is a mirror, a holographic mirror of the universe um, that, that we don't have to seek to escape, that we can actually see the corporeal as the flash as a doorway, uh, the flash as a sacred space. Um, uh, then, you know, to use a, more Gnostic term, it becomes a sacrament, right? That we could even talk about it in that perspective as well. And I wonder too, I think that people, I don't know if they realize it or not, but even people from Eastern perspectives who denigrate the physical body, sometimes I think they feel as if they're trying to, you know, leave this limited realm of, of disgusting passions and disappointments and suffering and go on to this to this other dimension but the from a tantric perspective this whole world is made up of a goddess it's prakriti it's mahamaya this is even embracing the physicality of the world is a type of worship of the goddess of the feminine and so i often wonder sometimes when you see people denigrating the body and want to escape from it is there some kind of weird subtext of the fear of the feminine even within that um you, you know even if they don't realize it yeah i i mean how would it even be possible to obtain wisdom or gnosis without a human body? I mean, as far as I'm aware, that is for us, the only way to do it, like is through the body. Right. Right. I think so too. And that was even the whole basic concept of Ayurvedic medicine was that it was seeking to balance the physical body so that it could become the best expression or the best environment to maximize one's expression of their karma. And that would be how we would live out our Dharma. And so if that's not happening, then we were stuck, you know, or we're, it's kind of like what, it's almost like groundhog day. Then you just return back and try it again, return back and try it again. This is from an Eastern perspective. Some people might not take that angle. But from a tantric perspective, we want to embrace any chance we have in a physical body. And also, we see this even in the scriptures. The deities want the physical body, too. That's why they have avatars. They incarnate. They, they want to come down here and experience that as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I think from many traditions, there's this notion, certainly from Western esoteric, that the human is in a unique position in that we sort of a, a mediator. Yes. Or, or you could say it's a middling realm, you know, depending mm-hmm. on your perspective. But that uh, we have the capability, if we really work and apply ourselves and are fortunate and blessed to reach even greater heights than angels, at least that's what I've been told. I would agree. And and many of the tantric texts talk about that. And specifically, many of the Agora practices are all about this, that, you know, that seeking to find that spark of Agni, that spark of the Atman in every single expression on earth, regardless of how dirty it looks, how frightening it looks, how disturbing it looks, or how beautiful it looks, that the Agora was seeking to find that and extract that. Um, and that's a key part of my book, and is, is that how can we extract this Raza from life, from these different experiences? Yeah, to do that, that, it's a key point of that text. Definitely. Could you mention, I, you know, the the ways or the methods that you talk about in the text you engage in in order to bring that awareness into reality? Yeah, I mean, there's different, you know, different tantra traditions. Different have different perspectives on that. Um, the tr- the traditions that I were initiated into and studied with were definitely, although some might be called Vamacharya left hand path, you know, some would be called or are called the Agora path. Um, and then from the outside perspective, it seems very controversial or maybe very dark or, or, or strange. But from the inside view. Once you know, once again, we're back talking this holographic language, right? Yes. We have to use these. We have to use these strange spatial concepts: verticalism, horizontal, inside, outside, to describe something which is which is really just in, it, it's encompassing everything. We're already in it, it's like a womb. But regardless, we have to just try to describe it. And so, from the agoric perspective, once you're in it, everything is the divine. Yes. Every everything is beauty. Yes. And so the whole thing and and. So once that happens, then every human experience can become sacred, you know, joy, sadness, anger, fear, uh, lust, um, passion, uh, compassion, generosity, all those things have a certain raza to it. And we can extract that. Uh, And as we extract these experiences, and if we're able to extract something, which we would, it produces a certain type of substance in the body which from an ayurvedic perspective we would call ojas and that is a type of rejuvenating factor that allows our body to transmute things it's we, we're seeking to have certain certain internal secretions in the body and that can also transform our consciousness and then when that happens we we can start to have radically different perspectives on life we can see trends in our karma and then we're able to kind of dive deeper deeper into our practices um Obviously, this this includes all the limbs of yoga, um, the practice of Jyotish or Vedic astrology, definitely the practice of Ayurvedic medicine, and and it's very specific alchemy practices called you know Rasayana, mm-hmm. that certain substances can be used and transformed. But those are all kind of like glamorous things, and people kind of can get caught up into that. 
But what it really comes down to is, is our perspective of life, our, our, our perspective of the human incarnation and what is its role. Um, because it doesn't, you can take the most fancy Ayurvedic alchemical basmas, or you can do the, the most special mantras, but if you don't have the right perspective, they're just, they're dead. It's like, you know, yeah. And that's that, that's that thing like Shiva without Shakti is Shabda. Shiva mm-hmm. without the Shakti is a corpse, you know? And yeah, so, without and the, I, yeah, without the, with that, they're not I often say Shiva without Bhakti is a corpse, is, is a corpse. Yeah. So, I mean, so without a, the proper you know, view, the methods don't work at all. And so that's a big thing that I, I'm always trying to, and I hope even in my book that there, there are techniques, there are things mentioned there, but um, it's not an instruction manual right. per se. It's, it's more an experiential. It's a chance for someone to get a glimpse into a tantric worldview, but although it is, it does have rituals, it does have much deeper aspects than that. So people, there are keys in there that if people were studying, they could take and, if they had a teacher they could go to with questions and there it would definitely stimulate some interesting discussions so that does exist within that you know yeah for sure i mean it's it's just bursting forth with that sort of content um one thing i really liked is the way you wrote about uh, this idea of sacrifice um which can take many forms of course but i i don't think many people who haven't experienced the rigors of a tantric path and not to brag um because you know it's not really something worth doing but there is a tremendous amount of sacrifice that is entailed just for in in terms of the practitioner at least from that perspective as a one who may be starting out on the path or um because typically people approach the spiritual path with with this notion about i want to change i want to grow i want to become the 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 special being or i want to become enlightened but really the spiritual path it's not about you or me it's about the divine and so immediately you're presented with the fact that you have to give up your notions of specialness or that you're going to like somehow be anything special or different or unique or recognized and then and then you're even presented further with the fact that yeah, you may have sacrificed like some degree of your identity. Okay, big deal. But think about what the divine has already sacrificed before you even, you know, step foot here. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a radical concept, and I think that some sometimes uh, that's one of the missing links that people really always seem to forget, or they evade, whether unconsciously or consciously, is that you know to. To, to pursue the tantric path, uh, to, to pursue a yogic path re- requires a radical reorientation of one's perception of reality and one's perception of one's role in the world. But to pursue a tantric path, it, it, it not only does it have a radical reorientation, once you reorientate, then it's going to have a radical deconstruction, and then it's going to have a radical sacrificial pyre on which these things happen so it's a multi it's many different levels of that 
Um, and it does require a lot of uh, things giving up. And a lot of people might not understand that because they thought we were just talking about, no, we're not seeking to escape something. Um, but, but the point is, is many people have things in their lives that start to become buffers to their spiritual self-realization. Um, and and that, that's the problem, right? People, whether it's a family, a job, a desires, it, it forms a wall around their ability of, to see the solar sun of the Atman for it to shine through. Um, from the tantric perspective, we want to burn down all those walls and truly embrace the human experience without anything holding us back. And so for each person, that could be different, right? That's why the tantric practices were always unique. Each, each practitioner was given maybe different instructions, although it might exist within a particular lineage. Um, but it definitely demanded more of someone, even if on the surface, the person's life seemed regular, um, on the inner experience of that person, they were experiencing a completely different radical perception of reality. Um, um, that, and I think that's an important concept for people to see. And uh, it sometimes comes through as a warning, right? This is why we see warnings in many of the tantric texts. Yeah, a lot of people perceive that as a type of spiritual elitism or some type of kind of like old school kind of, you know, think from an old worldview where people were superstitious and now we, we've evolved to a higher state. We know that's not true anymore. And, and, and that's, you know, almost what I would refer to to use a more Western esoteric term, that's a very aramonic worldview of that, right? It tries to really kind of desacralize everything and make everything into this mechanistic, rational universe. Um, and we have to start to clear our minds so that we can see that. And that can be very frightening for some people. Um, and it definitely, once you experience that, once you see some of these things and have some of the experiences, it's very hard for them to go back to a reg, quote regular reality and that can be shocking to some that can cause psychological problems nervous system disorders or just basic unhappiness and depression which is still a problem you know um, and so i think the idea of sacrifice and what one is willing to give up for their spiritual practices is a very sobering conversation that they should have and i i say this a lot because it can get very um frustrating for me because I get this question constantly um, is that uh, how can I find a guru, right? And, and I understand that, that I, that's part of what people will ask because I've written extensively about that. But part of the thing is, and, and I go over, I say, well, you know, before you find a guru, you have to be even ready to be a student. And that's a big part. But also even before you find a guru, people have to understand when they do encounter that guru, what's going to happen? You know, it's, it's, there's going to be a combustion there. And that in, in Vedic astrology, whenever whatever house Surya or the sun is in, we call that the, it's combustion. And the sun is the Surya or the sun is considered a malefic, which is very mysterious, right? The sun is supposed to be beautiful. It's a it's a symbol of prana. It's the it's the cosmic symbol of the Atman. It gives life to all of us. Uh, every cell in our body has a, a receptor. So when it encounters solar radiations, it can make vitamin D, which keeps us alive. But Vedic astrology says, well, regardless, it's a malefic. What they mean is that whatever house that the sun is, it's going to just combust and burn away anything that's not important or anything that's not truly essential for that person's 
transformation and growth. And mm-hmm. that can be intense because most people don't, they think that what they think what they want is real. They think what they want is the most important thing, but often that's not the case. Um, yeah. Almost always. <laughs> Almost always. Right. And then, so the guru is usually the guru is like that sun. The guru is there to, it causes combustion. And a lot of people aren't ready for that. Uh, that's a very controversial subject. And, and um, I have many people that get very mad at me and angry at me for saying that someone needs a guru. And that's, it's fine. They can, everyone can take any path they want. But, um, but, but, but that, the whole idea of that solar combustion. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's so many things I had to say in response to that. So I'm going to limit myself. But <laughs> go for it. Okay. One of them is my teacher always says, this is the path of giving up everything and getting nothing in return. Yes. Um, and I said recently to somebody, and I think it it is a crude summation of some of what you just said, that the spiritual path will fuck you up. And if you don't absolutely have to get on it, you should avoid it at all costs. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually really, that's a really well said. I like that. And what else? I love the way uh, Nisar Gardata said that liberation is never of the person. It's only ever from the person. Right. So you have to understand, like, people get upset about the fact they need a guru. Well, that's good because if you actually were a student or a disciple of the guru, it would be way more intense and you'd be experiencing a lot of wrath. (laughs) Right. Right. It's very similar to, you know, people are always like, Oh, I I want to worship Kali or I want to worship by reveal, or I want to worship Dumavati. Uh, And that those are, they don't understand that what that entails like when you when you kind of address that level of consciousness to the human experience it can be radically um disorienting and radical trans it's very challenging and so i think um they they have to be ready for that and that's where the warnings come from that's what your teacher is talking about you know so much although it's not it, it dwarfs it there is many similarities and uh, martial arts lineages about you know like receiving the sifu title or like the amount of sacrifices that someone has to make to receive that title is just ridiculous no one should do that you know when, when anyone asked me should i do that to pursue that 99 percent time i i say just what you said no, absolutely no it's going to ruin your life it's going to take up all your time you're not going to have a social life unless you just have to have it more than anything else that's the only reason you pers- should pursue it. And, and uh, in many ways, many of the paths of Tantra are the same way. Absolutely. I mean, and realistically, it makes sense to me that if you want to understand the, the actual nature of reality, which entails being it, right. That, that you have to sacrifice, that you're going to have to embark on a path where you're going to end up nullified. Exactly. Yeah. And the, the, one of the unique things that this brings us up to is this concept of, you know, which I discuss in the book, you know, attenta beta beta vada or simultaneous unity and difference right mm-hmm. um, and there's different there's you know there's different lineages that have different concepts of, of that 
and this idea of um, you know does the person just dissolve into nothingness or do they sustain some level of consciousness and of course different traditions that i've in, in, or participate in or involved with have unique perspectives on that but even from a, that's a unique thing about tantra is tantra is seeking to distill down the essence of a person so that there is some semblance of memory left when the person leaves this human body absolutely and that's a very important concept which is not talked about a lot is that you know most levels of awareness when when the person leaves the body through the doorway of death they're, they're basically we talk about in vedic studies that, you know and i talk about in the book you know there's the devayana or the pathway to the gods and there's the pitriyana which is the pathway to the ancestors of the moon and the, and the Upanishads would always talk about that the Pitriyana or the path to the moon was just like a kind of like a cosmic recycling factory. That's right. right. Yeah, the ancient, Greeks, the ancient Greeks had the same idea, exact same thing. Yeah. So it's been, so that's something that, you know, it's like, okay, you're going to just be recycled and, and you'll get to try again. And guess what? When you try it again, you're not even going to remember that you started again. So it's like a, it's like a cruel joke. And I think that's where a lot of people, you know, they see some sorrow and they say, well, this is a cruel joke. I want to add this. I'll stop this ride. I want to get off. And so there is a perspective of that, but from the tantric perspective, it says, okay, I can tell you how to get off, learn to be a human, stop trying to escape this, embrace it and truly experience it. Um, in its essence, um, and then that's that, that's another more radical, rapid doorway. But like what we were discussing, it's also very tricky. It's also yeah, very I mean, challenging. It, on some level, it involves completely altering your perspective from <laughs> one of subject in a world of objects to a much more holistic perspective. But that that you can't do that in a mental intellectual way it's just that's not it right and it's, that's it's, really it's what a, your book is i think really sh shows me and and shows anyone who reads it i appreciate that and that's that was actually another goal of my book because in my, in my i remember thinking and that exact concept and i thought how can i express the essence of nisargargata but also express the essence of the vaishnavas traditions who would talk about to try to intellectualize this is blasphemy mm. and so that they would be so you have these two radically different viewpoints right you had one more contemporary like Nisargadatta, which would get lumped into advaita vedanta but then you had vaishnava you know tantric cult who would say to understand the amorous play of sri krishna and radha in vrindavana the only key to that doorway is through pure bhakti and through pure love you know jnana yoga or intellectual yoga will not only keep you out but it will ban you from that dimension right That's and so these right. are these yeah these are riddles right these are riddles so i was, I was like okay these they're saying the same thing and exactly. so I, I thought about that yeah these are they're saying the same exact thing and so how can i give someone a glimpse of this and so that was my hope and uh, you know we're human and we fail on our efforts to do these things but we try very hard as as the you know as the to do this to express that and so uh, i often feel that poetry can express that so that's why there's a lot of poetry in the, in the text as well oh absolutely i think poetry is perhaps the ultimate 
expression in word of wisdom. I agree. And a poetic vision of reality is what the, the Vedas were trying to express and the Upanishads as well, too. Uh, and they were trying to express that poetic view of, that, of reality. And to understand that, one has to start to you know, read four to five different levels in every experience. And that's very hard from someone who lives in a reductionist, only Newtonian perception of reality. Oh, I mean, yeah, I, just the way our minds work, I think we're we're kind of locked into a specific perspective that's very materialistic and nihilistic. And it takes, it takes, I mean, it takes tremendous work and tremendous blessing force to allow any deviation from that. I that's a, that's an incredibly important point. I 100% agree because our entire culture is set up to to kind of stop what we're talking about and and in some ways obviously but in some ways unconsciously but it doesn't matter whether it's consciously or unconscious they still exist and so it's, and that's where we could you know where we have to kind of there's a certain battle that's where I often you know say these things like you know arise arjuna Mm-hmm. That's where we can talk about these concepts, the Bhagavad Gita. There is a battle in some levels for our perspective of reality. Each human has this. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, each human has this, and so that we have to participate. You can't be a bystander. No, there's no... It's, this is, in many ways, it, I mean, I know the analogy is, is, again, crude. I'm a crude man. But it's like a prison. Like you, you yeah. have to either be a warrior or you're going to end up a victim, and you just yeah. have to make a yeah. choice. Yeah, yeah. And I and I think that I don't think that's actually a crude description at all. I think it's a very uh, accurate description, and, and it's a very frightening description. And and to be honest with you, I even intimated some of those ideas in entering the desert. Um, for people to consider about that, what does it mean in that perspective? Is that we we have to make a choice when that and and you and it doesn't necessarily mean that you know one choice is is the better choice. I think you know what we're talking about is that sometimes that choice to to be the warrior to be the fighter is very hard. It's very dangerous. Oh, certainly, <laughs> and, yeah. And so to do that is that's that's one thing. But um, from another perspective, then that's the best thing we can ever hope for is to have that. And yeah, because if we intend to obtain wisdom, that means inherently prior to that, we have to recognize like that we have inherent nobility and right. inherent nobility is not going to cower in the corner. It's going to stand up and fight. Right. Right. Exactly. And I think we see that in today's contemporary landscape is that although we have this world which prides itself in what they call the pseudo-individualism we're actually seeing the exact opposite we're seeing a complete leveling of kind of like a monoculture and a lot of that is because of the fear of what it really means to be an individual um obviously some obviously some very mundane fear that if someone just has a viewpoint that's unique 
or a perspective that's unique, then they will be unpopular. That's one level. But there's also probably there's it's a deeper aspect on an unconscious or subconscious level that because it demands them to stand up and confront their own personal karma. You know, that I, I there was a very unique uh, you know, because I grew up as a child reading Ishkan books because mm-hmm. as a child, I, I grew I was born in 1970. So I grew up in the height of the Hare Krishna movement. And so those books were just everywhere. And so they and, and so they were so beautiful and so strange and mysterious. Mm. And so I, I never became involved uh, with that, but I had all the books and I would read them. And, and, and that was a beautiful kind of doorway into my experience of, of becoming a Hindu. But I remember one discussion of Prabhupada and he said, the reason why people like to think of, of Brahman as this as this big ocean of nothingness instead of a personality-based deity is because if it's nothingness, they never have to confront the reality of who they are. That's they right. can just they can just die and dissolve into nothingness. They never have to do anything. But his he was saying, but no, the supreme personality of Godhead is going to demand that you be who you are, and that to do that requires a lot of courage, uh, discipline. Uh, and so I thought I always thought that was kind of fascinating. It's, I'm not saying I necessarily agree with it, but it's an interesting perspective of what we're talking about. You know, I think that there's a direct correlation between that what you just said and this and people's reluctance to, I even admit that a guru might be necessary. Yeah, because yeah. many people would rather like Christ, like Christ is my savior, right? Yes. Yes. But a living guru is the only one who can get in your face and like get right. in down in your business and kick ass and yeah. take names yeah. and make you sweat and put you on the spot. And that's an entirely different thing. Yeah, it's totally different. It's like, you know, Christ is really cool until he's telling you to abandon your family mm-hmm. and, and follow him. And it's like, whoa, that's not what I thought it was going to ask me to do. You know, and then so that's the difference between being, you know, a bystander or what I sometimes call a tourist, a spiritual tourist, mm-hmm. or is or is, or is someone going to be a traveler or a pilgrim on that path? They have to pursue that. They have to make a commitment of some point of that. Certainly, um, you know, everyone has their level of what commitment they're willing to make. That's that's what prob- that's what a you know parabdha karma is, right? There's different levels of karma. Our parabdha karma is whatever individual kind of extraction of karma we have in this lifetime. And that's very unique for everyone. So some people are more willing to make a deeper commitment than others and that's fine, but they, everyone can still has a chance to evaluate that, right? Sure. Think about these things, to talk about these things and to think about what that might really mean. And that's what it means when we, when we're talking about people asking about a guru, you know, it's like many times, like some of the, the uh, Kung Fu teachers I've studied with, that have just been main, just complete maniacs. You know, I mean, the highest level teachers, and oftentimes people are like, oh, that must be so great to to be studying with that person. They have no clue what that means. No, you know what the, what that the it's like. I, I often refer to it as like a radiation. It's like you're you're going to be exposed to this this radiation, and that radiation is dangerous. And so some people can take it or not. Some people can't. That's right. You know, it's like you know, it's like what are they going to do? Um, and so many times or not, you know, they'll say, should I study with this teacher? I'm like, no, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely do not. Do not study with that teacher. 
why why you have i'm like it's different you know and it's not saying that and you know that's the problem is when we talk about these things people can say oh they're saying they're better they're they're stronger they're cooler they're whatever and that's actually the exact opposite of what we're saying um but these are kind of concepts that i think are important to discuss and bring up when people are talking about like should i find a guru can i find a guru all those kind of things i feel like to me no one should even think about a guru unless you've somehow mastered like other areas of your life where you can be successful, be responsible, communicate effectively, uh, take care of all worldly matters and are completely 100% devoted and in search of the divine. And then possibly you could go find a guru and actually make it work. And that was how the traditional stages of life were set up in, in India. You know, there was that, 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 that's how it was set up. And of course, some people were on different spectrums on, on those stages, but you're 100% accurate. That's, that's not a wild concept. And we see that mirrored. And even in some of the Western esoteric traditions where various practitioners would say, I recommend this many years of therapy before you go into occult practices. I recommend this before I go into these deeper occult practices, which that's just completely forgotten today. It is, unfortunately, but it's so beneficial because only when you have been able to do those things or do the potential for like greater spiritual realization open up, which seems maybe counterintuitive. I don't know, but just that's how it works. Yeah. And I, and I will say this, another deeper uh, kind of current that runs through my book is my my deep in of the teachings of Sri Aurobindo mm. and, and Sri Aurobindo was adamant that the evolution of humanity was going to come via the incarnated body, not by transcending it, but by a literal transformation of the human species, like a literal cell- cellular transformation of the human species would occur. Mm. That was the that was a fundamental teaching of the Aurobindo system. That was always a huge influence on me. Um, definitely an Aurobindo devotee. So that's is a, always thought was like you couldn't express tantra even any better than that, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, that, that's beautiful. You, yeah, and so that's what I think that we're talking about here too. Is like there 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 is really no escape. There might be an escape from a limited myopic human experience. Definitely. Escape, yeah, we want to escape that. Like you said, we want to escape that type of prison. But once we leave, it's not into some magical land. It's even to be more human. Exactly. To feel, to feel more. To, to become more, more. more embodied, more enworlded. Right, exactly. I think we're coming probably to the end of our time here this evening. Really been amazing to speak with you. Uh, again, I feel like every time we talk, the time passes too quickly and so much passes between us and I come away with it. Like it's, it's just such a blessing. So I want to thank you again. And uh, I just, if you have any, you know, final thoughts or just want to let people know where they can find you online or 
how to get the book or any upcoming projects? No, it's my I, I it's my honor to be on. A, I'm always always cherish our conversations, and this has been a very inspiring conversation for me as well. I, and yeah, I, I'm always honored by the feedback. Feedback on the new book is overwhelming. Um, the, they can definitely find Tantric Physics Volume One and Two via Anathema Publishing. If they're in Europe, that they can get it through the Cyclic Law distributor, mm. um, and then they can also go on my blog, Transmissions from the Kali Yuga. I, I continuously write both poetry and just kind of philosophical expressions on that. And then my deepest hope is that people find that tantric physics physics is inspiring to them and to their own practices, um, and that it helps them deepen their own perspective, whether it's a Hindu tantra or a Buddhist tantra, or if they're practicers of Western esotericism and they can maybe find something that I hope it inspires them as well. Thank you so much. I mean, I, and just as a final thought, I, I agree. I think anyone who's, whether they're an esoteric practitioner, regardless of the tradition, or even just interested in esotericism and not a practitioner, your book is tremendously beneficial from many different perspectives. Um, not the least of which is giving people somewhat of a taste of a really beautiful esoteric tantric exposition you know with full uh explanation in terms of like various aspects of practice and view it's just amazing i, I mean i'd recommend it to anybody regardless of their interest level and uh i think you know, because everyone's different, they're going to come away with different insights from it. But I feel like, again, this is really the best book I've read on the subject. Um, and I'm really proud to, you know, know you and to be able to speak with you about it is really wonderful. I'm humbled by your words and I'm honored by your words, particularly as coming from a practitioner yourself. And so I, I'm grateful and thankful for that. And, and that's my deepest hope is that this book, this inspire people to get a taste of Tantra and to maybe pursue their own personal studies with a guru or a teacher of their choice. And that it kind of in some way contributes to their own path of self-realization. That's the best I could hope for. Certainly. Thank you again, Craig. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much, Craig. In the second half of the interview, in the Chamber of Reflection, Craig and I continue to discuss tantric physics, diving very, very deeply into an exploration of gnosis, birth and death, and much more. In all my years of recording this podcast, few interviews have resulted in a more in-depth analysis and discussion that goes straight to the heart. You do not want to miss this crucial conversation on the very nature and purpose of esoteric practice. I'd like to remind you that although you're able to listen to this podcast at no charge, it costs time and money to create. We ask you to support our efforts and the creation of future podcasts by joining the membership section at chamberofreflection.com or subscribing via Patreon at patreon.com slash personality. And if you're already supporting the show or have done so in the past, my heartfelt thanks. 
and I salute you. Diana, regina della selva, sangue sulle foglie, zoccoli che vanno nel terreno nella notte, tu che sei freccia che colpisci, prede e predatrice, Diana delle profonde oscurità e delle altezze luminose, riflesso della luna sulle acque, fuoco nascosto nelle profondità. Tu che sei il vuoto che partorisce le stelle, l'infinitamente grande e l'infinitamente piccolo. Diana Trivia, signora dei confini, lama del coltello, soglia del cambiamento, mi attendi ad ogni incrocio e cedi la chiave dei misteri. Vieni a me sulle ali del vento.